Anyone uh, remember when you first began to be told about the gospel, uh, about uh, the salvation story, uh, learn the Bible, when you first heard about the rapture of the church, about the second coming of, of Christ, about the rapture, what were your what were your thoughts, or what were you, what was your your immediate thoughts, or anybody, or reaction to hearing about the second coming of Christ, about the rapture of the church? Maybe this is the first time we're all hearing about it. Well, good. <laughs> Anyone? Kind of scary. How many of your first experience of knowing about the rapture was watching a movie like Left Behind? Was anybody that was your first? Thank goodness that wasn't. <laughs> yeah, scary. So in, in Bible college, I, as honorary as this sounds, and some of us that, you know, uh, I understand this could sound really terrible tell, retelling it, but um, one of the favorite things to play jokes on, especially underclassmen at Bible college, was what we called rapture scares. And what they do is, you know, the uh, Bible talks about people being taken up in the twinkling eye, you know, one being left and the other one gone. And so we would get clothes and lay them out, like socks, shoes, everything, like somebody just disappeared in them. And we'd have music playing in a room, the TV on, hair dryers going. This was back in the day when guys did use hair dryers, you know, because it was in the 90s. But anyway, you had hair dryers going, all this. And the poor guy that worked late hours, you know, trying to put himself through Bible college, We'd go hide in like a maintenance closet or hide in, in one room and have the door cracked to watch them come in. And Pastor Jim that started this church, he, that's, it's not just that we did that. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, and he told stories. And he told one time where they'd done that, and this poor guy comes back from working late and literally falls to his knees in the hallway and starts crying to God. He's like, oh, no, God. And he starts confessing his sins, thinking everybody's gone but him. And needless to say, it probably wasn't that funny, uh, but remember Pastor Jim saying <laughs> He felt so bad for that guy um, because he found out it was all uh, a joke. Well, I've decided, you know, we started out on this series of, in the book of Revelation in the first chapter, and, I, and we were moving kind of slowly through it. Um, there's so much to the book of Revelation. Last week I, I told you we were going to get into one thing, but I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little further and get into chapter 4, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, uh, to mainly make sure that we hit a good chunk of the, the main portions of Revelation in the time that I feel that we're, we should be spending on this. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the concept of the rapture has captivated the minds and hearts of the church uh, like no other doctrine in the Bible really has. Especially as kids, when you're told about, about the rapture, I remember any time I came home and I couldn't immediately find my mom and you sh- usually could yell for mom, and she's there, and then not, mom's not there, and I'm running around like, oh, no, you know, I sh- shouldn't have lied yesterday, <laughs> you know, and, and, and while that seems comical now, that it was so scary and so, so um, horrible feeling to think that you got left behind. And, you know, now with the, with the end times as close as they are, the things that we see that indicate, um, it's, it's even getting closer and closer it, it makes some who, who tend to live in fear even more fearful of that day. And then I think somewhat, some churches are kind of drifting away from I- even teaching on that or talking about it. And uh, we talk about one day in heaven, but we don't talk about that time when Jesus comes back for his church. It's estimated there are over 1,845 references to a second coming for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Over 1,800 references. 
and it's found in 17 Old Testament books. In the New Testament, there's over, there are, are 318 references, or one out of every 30 verses, and it's mentioned in 24 of the 27 books. So this is something that is, that is really um, talked about uh, intensely throughout all of Scripture. And for every prophecy concerning the birth of Christ, there are eight uh, looking forward to his return. So every time they talked about baby Jesus, there was eight more times they're talking about Jesus coming back as warrior king Jesus. Now the rapture isn't the second coming of Christ, but it is attached to and precedes it. That's why it's important to understand that, and important for our witness and important for us to be ready you know, I used to confuse that a lot. I'd say the second coming of Jesus in the same breath that I was talking about, the rapture of the church. But really, even they are two separate events, but they are still attached, one preceding the other. Now, we're going to get into a little bit of um, uh, <clears throat> theology terminology tonight. So uh, nothing real major or real complex, but for some it might be new or you barely uh, heard these terms. And so we're going to walk kind of slowly through them. Uh, there's a, refer- or a, a terminology for pre-tribulation rapture. And pre-tribulation rapture, or when we talk about pre-trib, or they say post-trib, or, or, or anything like that, it's just talking about whether the Christians will be there through the time of tribulation or not. Well, pre-tribulation means we rapture before. And those who hold the pre-tribulation rapture may, may see this event in the first verse of Revelation chapter 4. And while it's not my intent tonight, and you'll find a lot of um, spirit-filled churches where the minister doesn't try to uh, push, you must believe pre-trib or post-trib, let you come out on your own. I will tell you what I believe by the end of the message, but we're going to walk through some of these different, um, different uh, theologies of, of what people believe. So let's take a look at this verse. Uh, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place. That's Revelation 4.1 in the New King James Version. So the word rapture doesn't occur in English Bibles. And that's where there could be a lot of controversy between different denominations and different scholars on the rapture because the word rapture doesn't occur in the English Bible. This is one of the reasons why many say it's a recent doctrine and it has no place within biblical teaching. The word actually comes from the Latin translation. The Latin Vulgate, which, is, which was written in the early 5th century, the word is found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then when we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. See, the Latin word for caught up is rapio. In the Greek, it's harpaso, which means to steal or carry off or snatch away by force with no resistance offered. So that's that's where the root of that, where we're getting uh, the word rapture. And if we were to give the word rapture a definition, it would probably be something like this. It'd be the rapture is where believers in Jesus Christ are removed from this earth in an instance, whether they are dead or alive, by Jesus Christ before the outpouring of God's wrath prior to his second coming. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, 
uh, speaking about the coming of the Lord, says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring, them, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant, which means Paul doesn't want us to lack the necessary knowledge of this great event. Paul doesn't want us to miss the vital uh, um, and important truth concerning those believers who had died prior to this event because there was confusion in Paul's time. There were those who, who it, it was more than scary, they misunderstood um, uh, about the rapture and the second coming, and there was a fear not just of being uh, <clears throat> left, but of uh, totally missing the event uh, altogether. The believers in Thessalonica were expecting Jesus' return at any time. But many of them were dying, and the church thought those who died missed out. So in other words, if you weren't alive when Jesus raptured the church, then you missed it. And that's what they were starting to believe. So if you, you know, there was a greater fear of dying, those who believed. Not only were they grieving their deaths, but they were also wondering if they missed out on the second coming. Now, Paul doesn't tell them not to grieve, but when they grieve, they weren't to lose hope. That's why in modern uh, believers' uh, funerals, you know, it's an easier funeral to preach as a believer because I know where that person is, right? And I have the hope of where they are. And so they didn't miss anything. They got an early graduation, if you will, an early prom promotion. So we actually now talk a lot of times about a believer's funeral is it's a celebration of their life, of their home going. See, they weren't, but when they grieved, they weren't to lose hope because both the dead and those who are alive will be raised at this special resurrection. With this knowledge, they could chill out and comfort those who are missing, uh, who are missing this truth. So I'm sure it's a big relief to some of those at that time. It's like, oh, you mean I've had it wrong? I, I don't have to worry about if I die before this happens. In fact, uh, if I die before it happens for everybody else, then I get to experience this early. But so this singular event of Jesus coming back for his church prior to the second coming is what we're looking at. We see the same event talked about by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church when he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. He says, 15 verses 51 through 53, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this moral this mortal must put on immortality. Paul calls this event a mystery, which is comforting to us because if Paul is calling it a mystery, one who actually saw Jesus 
who was struggling with blindness, who, whose life has truly changed, as close as Paul is to the Lord, if it's a mystery to him, then that means we don't have to have it all figured out when it comes to actually what's going to happen in timeline. There are things we have to have figured out, and that's where we stand with the Lord. Beyond that, uh, we don't have to know every detail. The word means something that cannot be explained through rational means or human intellect. Therefore, it can only be understood through divine revelation. That is, God revealing it to us, explaining it so we can understand. You know, and I've heard uh, some uh, sermons where minstrels say, you know, God's given me a revelation about revelation, and now I know, you know, it's pre-trib or it's post-trib or it's this or that. You know, I'm cautious when I hear that. Uh, I'm not going to doubt whether uh, they got the revelation, but I don't think that we have every detail spelled out to us. And I don't think that God's going to give someone a revelation that's going to make it any more clear from one guy when there's been thousands of years of study over this. But that's just me. Uh, Paul also explains how this rapture will take place. It says that is in a moment, in a twinkling of eye. In the time it takes to blink, it will happen. It only takes one-tenth of a second to blink. I was uh, doing a little research for the interview that we were going to do with the kids and coming up with questions for Andrew, Andrew used today. And uh, one of the things I was looking online, it was, it was uh, one of these late shows, and they were interviewing, it was interviewing people about their moms and interviewing about their dads. And some of it was, you know, bad advice dads have given to kids. And one of them was telling them, in a job interview, never blink. It shows weakness. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking that would be a scary interview if you're interviewing somebody and they're just like this. You know, frozen, not blinking. In one-tenth of a second, every believer, both dead and alive, will be resurrected just like the blink of an eye. There's an interesting foreshadow of this event found in Genesis. It's the story of Enoch. Some of you may be familiar with Enoch. Genesis 5.24 says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Not Enoch died, not Enoch, uh, you know, uh, got elderly and passed away. He was not. He was and he was not. Uh, there's also a New Testament commentary on this passage about Enoch in Hebrews 11.5 when it says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had his testimony that he pleased God. So everyone else in Genesis' genealogy died except Enoch. Instead, he was raptured. He was, uh, he was alive when God took him to heaven. Therefore, Enoch really is our first foreshadow of a believer being translated, if you will, into heaven without dying. Teleported, transported, whatever you want to say, but they've been taken up without dying. But he's not the last. There's also Elijah. It says in Second uh, Kings 2.11, Then it happened, as they continued on, a, on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, when we went to pick up Mickey in the Hummer limo, you know, uh, everybody else's eyes were big. I don't think Mickey even noticed the limo. <laughs> Mickey was just like, I'm ready to go home and get out of here. But can you imagine walking with God and a chariot of fire comes to pick you up? Yeah, that would be all right. You know, it, it, would, it would, any movie out there 
depicting something uh, incredible and awesome and, and supernatural would pale in comparison to that. Elijah never tasted death. When they searched for his body, they couldn't find it. Elijah had ascended into heaven bodily without dying. So here's some of the rapture theories. We're going to go ahead and break this down, some of the rapture theories. Now, it comes to the rapture, there's several views, and the first one I've already mentioned, pre-tribulation. That's the rapture will occur prior to the great tribulation and can happen at any time. Pre-wrath will be the rapture will occur prior to God's wrath being poured out. This is seen happening prior to the trumpet judgments, the, the seal judgments, the four horsemen and the apocalypse, and humanity's wrath against itself, not God's wrath. So it's a different, little different view, but it's the, the next closest to pre-tribulation. And then mid-tribulation, the rapture will happen halfway through the great tribulation. And this is seen, how, uh, this is seen in how the book uh, Revelation separates the tribulation in two halves. Further, we see a break in the book of Revelation after the trumpet judgments. So some, some hold to the fact that we'll be, we'll be going through half of the, the trials and the, the horrible stuff going on through the tribulation and then raptured. And then, of course, you can know by, by uh, pre and mid, now post-tribulation, the rapture will happen at the very end of the tribulation time. And here, the church is delivered through the tribulation, not from it. I found that a lot of times... Uh, predisposition in people's personalities will kind of determine where they fall on that now if you do any study about john the baptist he was separatist he was a kind of a part of a group they like to be off by themselves wearing crazy things eating bugs locusts fasting great you know great amount of time hardcore believers like hey you know if i if i get a splinter i'm gonna praise god for it you know <laughs> if if i get punished i praise god for it you know and then there's others who like to think you know jesus is not going to put us through any of that and he's going to take us early and then some are in between hey i can take a little pain and and uh, but not too much so each of these views has some aspect of scripture and reasons backing them i mean the folks that really adhere to these as theologians uh can in their mind truly prove them out by scripture so it's not a black and white issue as some people would like to think it leads me to the last rapture theory and this is the one that uh I tend to go to when, I, when someone is wanting to argue one of those with me, which I don't get into arguments about them, but if they want to uh, defend theirs because mine's different, I just throw out pan-tribulation. And that's no matter when Jesus comes back for his church, prior, uh, prior or in the middle or at the end, everything is going to pound out in the end. So you can just tell everybody I'm a pan-trib uh, believer. What's pan-tribulation? It's all going to pan out in the end doesn't matter whether I'm going early, mid, or late. Um, it's all going to pan out in the end. So I'd like to take this last part of my message and share with you some of the reasons why um, that, that I really do adhere, though, to the pre-tribulation, pre-tribulation theory. And, you know, that's what my dad also held to. It's, it's partly I, I listened to many sermons and heard the reason and, and thought out uh, through my dad's ministry. Uh, but for myself in study, and I, I believe uh, in pre-tribulation. I'm not telling you that's what you must adhere to. I'm just saying that's what I believe. The, the first thing, uh, why pre-tribulation, why I hold to that, is the church will not experience the wrath of God, and the scriptural support for that is 1 Thessalonians 5.9. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I could go to um, Romans 5, 9, where it says, Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Some would say, hey, well, Pastor CJ, obviously those could be referenced to the wrath of the time or, or you know, here on earth uh, before the tribulation. But uh, I tend to more look at Scripture when God is describing something like that, that, you know, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So I don't know if I can really stretch and say, well, but uh, all but the tribulation, then God's character and nature is going to be different there. And then to the Philadelphia church, Jesus said this, in Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my command to uh, persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So while we all go through trials and tribulations, the wrath of God is different and is used for a different purpose. When we talk about the wrath of God, I, I, I think of things like Sodom and Gomorrah. I think about the great flood. I think about the plagues and those things that happened, you know, uh, prior to Pharaoh finally letting God's people go. Uh, though that's what I think of God's wrath. When there are probably some that are uh, that in our eyes would be innocent there, but but God has given a nation or given them time and time again to to repent and turn. So, um, while we go through trials and tribulations, the wrath of God is different and used for different purpose, and that is against humanity's unrighteousness. Remember when Lot was having uh, the little bargaining time with God? If I find 50 righteous, will you? If I find 40, you know, and he's basically sounds like he's bargaining with God. Um, so divine wrath is, is then seen in, like I said, the great flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the ten plagues of Egypt. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. And then in Colossians 3.6 it says, Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Then we can get back into Revelation as a reference. Revelation 15.1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Then there's a second um, reason that I would stand on the pre-trib uh, belief, and that is because the church has to be gone for the Antichrist to be uh, revealed. And where do I get that? Well, if we look at Second Th Thessalonians 2, 6-8, it says, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now re uh, restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Paul is referring to the last days and the great apostasy that will happen. This is the part, as a young man too, learning to believe in God, that really drove me to, to do soul searching continually. You know, we, we have between denominations um, some that will hold to eternal security. And then in Pentecostal circles, they also would sometimes err and go to the point of eternal insecurity. And every time you mess up, you've lost your salvation to start again. Or at least they don't say that, but sometimes it's, it's presented that way. Um, but 
I choose to take a balance to that, that you can eventually turn away and, and move away from your salvation. We're not going to get a whole lot into that. We can get into another time, but one of the main points I always make is the 12 disciples were the first true Christians because Christ, like followers of Christ, they were following Christ, and Judas was accounted among them but made a decision to turn, and Jesus was giving him an opportunity at the Last Supper to even uh, to, to make things right. So, um, so the, Paul is referring to the last days and the great apostasy that will happen, and that is a large number of believers will fall away or renounce their faith. That was a part that really got me motivated to check my life over every time I was in prayer. But before the Antichrist can be revealed, the one who is presently restrain, uh, retraining, restraining the Antichrist is removed. Many see this as the Holy Spirit because only God can restrain lawlessness. So the idea is that before the Antichrist can come, the Holy Spirit being here and dwelling among us is what's holding the, the Antichrist back. Once the Holy Spirit's removed, there's nothing no longer there to, to restrain him. So in, in knowing that the Holy Spirit is instrumental when Christ returned back to the Father, when he ascended, he said, I'm sending the comfort to you. So the Holy Spirit was meant to dwell within us, work among us as believers. So if the Holy Spirit's going to be taken, then the thought is this means that the church is taken as well. So uh, the Holy Spirit is still around during the time of tribulation, leading the people to salvation. Uh, those known as the tribulation saints. Uh, so the Holy Spirit uh, isn't removed. I'm sorry, let me back up. I got my notes mixed up here. But So who is the restrainer? Paul describes the restrainer both as what and a who. So we, we have to notice the wording. You know what is restraining and he who, who now restrains. So the who is the Holy Spirit and the what is is the vehicle of grace the Holy Spirit works through, which will be the church. So Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, And I also say to you that you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In Matthew 16, 18. So since the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, and since the Bible says the Antichrist will make war with the saints and overcome them, Revelation 13, 7, then the church must be removed for Satan to bring this man, the Antichrist, on the scene. It, you know, we don't have every single detail, but in my mind, I'm thinking the way the world's going now, there's this big war between now people who believe in Jesus and every other faith. The, every other belief, every other God, there's, there's uh, no real pressure about any other belief other than if you believe in Jesus. And as long as the church is here, we can almost see there's, there, there, it's, it's coming down to a showdown. Because if, if those who believe in Jesus, there's still a reminder, there's still an opportunity, there's still some who will share their faith and opportunity for people to get saved. If the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and lead masses away and, and present himself as Christ, then that's very problematic if there's a mass number of believers still here and the church is still here. Because it'd be easy to point out the Antichrist for those that have the spirit of discernment. So um, this is where our verse in Revelation comes into play. In Revelation 4.1 it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must 
take place after this? So the question is, after what things? When we read that verse, we have to answer the question, after what things is it talking about? Well, the answer is what happened prior in chapters 2 and 3. In these chapters, Jesus is addressing the church, so after his dealing with the church, God unleashes the seal judgments, which begins with the coming of the Antichrist. The other interesting thing, as we see in Revelation, is the Greek name for the church, Ecclesia, is never mentioned again in the third chapter. It's like that word has just been, like there's no more reference to that word. So, until Jesus' concluding remarks in Revelation 22:16, the word Ecclesia is not mentioned again through there. So the next reference of the church in Revelation is found in chapter 19 as the bride of Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then as the army dressed in the white robes following Jesus upon his return as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we're only seeing these other two references to the church after this that uh, until that later verse is, is the church as the bridegroom of Christ and then as the mighty army coming back as Jesus is coming back to defeat Satan, right? So <clears throat> those who come to faith during the tribulation are called tribulation saints and are not referenced as a church. So that's interesting. Some that will hold other, other uh, theologies on this uh, don't really comment real strongly on the fact that they are giving a different term than the church, the tribulation saints. Now the way I've always been raised uh, and believed in, and uh, I thought, man, for those who come to know the Lord during the tribulation, that's got to be some real believers there. Because you imagine what's going on during that time for them to actually be able to have faith, believe, and accept Christ. But then again, we see uh, the church grow in times of persecution here. So maybe not. Maybe that's going to be a time of revival for some. But Jesus himself talked about this happening at a time that no one could predict. It says in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, a lot of you know we did the cameras, right, in the church. And some are in favor of it, some maybe not. But I will tell you they have more than paid for themselves on occasion. But um, I'm used to our, our church van sits in a certain, certain spot. Now, I don't really believe anybody in the right mind wants to steal that church van. I mean, if you take a good look, you know, inside and out, it's just not probably worth the risk. But, but you know, we have the camera facing one of them. And one night I get these little still shots. You know, it, it snaps a picture if there's movement. And we haven't got it fine-tuned, so I get a bunch of emails. So I just get kind of numb to where I don't really look at them. Once in a while, if I wake up at night and they're just hitting one after another, I'm like, okay, I'll see what this is. And I look, and the van lights are on, the headlights. And then the next frame is the van's pulling out, and the next frame, the van's gone. So I'm, I'm on trying to get on the live view, and I'm looking real quick. I was like, I was telling Jen, I was like, get ready to call the police, you know, and I'm getting, well, come find my brother who drives me on Sunday, usually picks up on Sunday, but decided to get Saturday night, and I didn't even think for a moment that he would pick it up early, so I was getting ready to call the police on my brother, can you imagine getting stopped in the church van, maybe guns drawn, because your brother called the police on you, so I get 
when I read the scripture, I think about if the master of the house knew when he's going to get robbed, what would he be doing? Well, I could tell you me because I'm a little bit off. If I knew ahead of time somebody's going to come and steal the church van, I'd go covert. I'd get a ladder and get on top of the, the, the building and, you know, maybe get my Spider-Man outfit on and get ready to pounce, you know, something. But I wouldn't just sit by living life as normal. I'd get prepared to catch the guy. It, it'd be a challenge, you know. Us men, you know, especially, we're like, oh, yeah, this guy thinks he's getting away with it, right? So when you read this scripture, watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So following Paul's description of the rapture, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-4. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day should not should that day should overtake you as a thief. So this is known as the imminent return of Jesus. Imminent meaning this can happen at any time, um, and there doesn't have to be anything preceding it. Um, you know, when they're given a tornado warning, you might hear them say, "If you are in the path of this storm, you are in imminent danger." It means it is coming quick, it is coming swiftly, and it is for sure. Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour, only the Heavenly Father. Matthew 24, 36, and 44. The only instruction Jesus gives concerning this event is to be ready. Just be ready. So kind of back to what I was saying before about being pan-trib. Really doesn't matter if your job and your only job is to be ready at all times and then spread the gospel, right? If you're keeping yourself in check, and, and then we can weave that thread all through Scripture. We go back to uh, what, what, talking about judging others. You know, remove the plank out of your own eye before you try to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, this whole idea of always being ready, always being prepared, it shows where the majority of our efforts need to be is introspectively, not outward-spectively, right? We're, we're worried about which president and what people, and I am too, and worried about you know, which bathroom the people are going to start using. And yes, I am too. I've got a little girl and I know all the discussions. But, but in the end, what should be the majority, the major part of my walk as a believer should not be about those topics as much as it is about if in my house, in this dwelling, I am always ready. And the scripture always talks about being ready in season, out of season. Always being ready to give an answer for your faith as well. If we're that kind of ready then we are doing the best we possibly can with the power of the Holy Spirit to combat all these other things where evil is running rapid and our, our nation is going down the toilet in our mind, right? So, so the book of Revelation has some key insight about how we are to be driven in our, in our walk with the Lord. There's a, a, another thing. Um, if the rapture comes during or at the end of the tribulation period, then we will know it because we'll see the preceding events occur. One is the, the marriage covenant. This is significant because Jesus calls himself the bridegroom and the church the bride in Revelation 19 and in Ephesians 5. 
So the evidence must also be considered because the things that Jesus said were of those time period about marriage has significant impact to us too. It's mainly about the marriage customs and the ceremonies uh, that uh, were in the forefront of their thoughts. So the audience that, that the writer that John is writing to and the message that's being given to him, the, this, this message, has importance on that cultural idea of marriage. And here's why. Listen to this. In Jesus' day, the Jewish custom concerning marriage was that it was more like a legal agreement. Now that's how it's going to be in our house with Lily. It's going to be more like a legal agreement. There'll be first some not-so-legal matters. Well, there'll be some intimidation. Um, there'll be some um, probably some uh, Ninja Warrior challenge, and if you fail, no, no go. Uh, and then when we finally get down the list, there'll probably be some kind of legal agreement and document that um, will get me out of trouble if I should have to bring physical harm to anyone that would harm her. So, so I can really relate to this time period um, and how they saw it. See, the bridegroom would come to the house of the bride and propose marriage. So the guy comes over and he proposes marriage, which could include a price to be paid. It was no small price, but a costly sum. As much as I love Lily, I'm planning to have a good retirement. When some young man comes knocking, he better have a lot of money. Um, and then afterwards, they would drink a cup of wine and offer a toast to the bride. See, the bridegroom would then go back to his father's house to build a room for him and his bride. And this construction would take a lot of time. But you see, here's a little, little interesting thing to this legal agreement. He's not allowed to say when the room is done. He's just building it. The father of the bride is the one who says when the room is done. And so he just keeps building and preparing until the father says, okay, now it's ready. And the bridegroom would then go back to, uh, the bridegroom would then go back to his father's house, construct this room, and the construction would take some time. The only fa then the father could tell the son when it was ready for occupancy. And when the son could go and get his bride, the bride was obligated to wait and be ready at a moment's notice. He didn't have to give her, uh, you know, hey, tomorrow at 3 o'clock I'm coming to get you. The room's ready and all that. And so the custom was for her and her bridesmaids to have an oil lamp always ready in case he came at night, which usually was the case. So it's kind of an interesting picture when you think about it. She's sitting there, and he's, he's got, you know, to build this room until he's told it's ready. She's got to sit there and wait, and she can't be, like, you know, just snoozing or off out shopping or whatever. She's got to be ready because it happened at a moment's notice. So the same word, this is, uh, at this time, she was considered set apart, which is the same word as holy and saint. And then interesting. Um, and it was referred to as being uh, bought with a price. So when the big moment arrived, the father sent his son and the son's friends to get the bride. And this was done in secret. Uh, that is, it was to be a surprise. And the bride would be considered as stolen. So I see a biblical reason that if someone comes and takes my daughter on a date, I get to call and report her stolen. However, before he got there, he would announce his arrival by blowing a horn. Now, any boy pulls up to my place and just blows a horn for her to come out, she won't be coming out, but I will. Um, so when they got to the house, the bridegroom would take his bride back to his father's house and into the room he built to consummate the marriage. And for the next seven days, they would stay in the father's house 
And it was during these seven days that the feast would be held known as the marriage feast. So after the seven days, the new couple would then go uh, to their own house, the one the bridegroom also built during his waiting period. This was a tough time. I just built my own house. I can't imagine building one in, in another house, a room in a house for my bride, and then as soon as uh, that seven days are over, I've got to have another house that I've already prepared and built. Also, uh, it made a new covenant, one in which he paid for dearly. When we see this and this being used in reference to Christ and the church as a bridegroom, think, think about this, that Christ, he paid for us through the blood he shed upon the cross. We were indeed expensive, just like the bride. Further, when he took the cup of the new covenant, that which we know as communion, he gave a toast and sealed the deal. So then Jesus, he went back to his father's house. So the disciples saw him ascend into heaven, and Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for all of us, and only the father knows when Jesus will be returning. So we see these references in John 14, 2 and 3, where it says, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you will be also. And then Mark 13, verses 32 and 33. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. You see, sometimes we pass over these analogies used as the bridegroom and those, but, but culturally, when we understand the culture, isn't there a beauty to that? that we're seeing how intense and how serious and how, uh, how expensive, how extravagant, how laid out a legal contract that, that God has literally laid claim to you when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He laid claim to you as an heir, as a son, as, as a daughter, but he literally, like a marriage, contracted, I'm going to build a house for you, you're coming back with me for always, and I will, I will, I will spend my most expensive uh, thing to, to purchase you. And as a bride of Christ, we wait always, need to be ready. In the ter- parable of the ten virgins, Jesus said that five were ready with extra oil for their lamps, but the other five were not, and they were left behind. And when Jesus comes for his bride, the church, it will be announced with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise along with those who are alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 53 so you see even the blowing of the horn everything culturally about this marriage god has inspired and spelled out to to let us know that we truly are loved just like as a a bride a bridegroom goes for his bride and goes through all this trouble to make sure that for all of eternity all time that they'll be together as a bride we are called to be holy that is set apart which is where we get the word saint, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And then afterwards, we'll be with him as he takes us back to the Father's house in heaven, where for seven years we'll partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The seven days, and then for seven years, and after the seven years, we'll come back to the earth with Jesus, following him on, a white, on white horses, Revelation 19, 14, and we'll be with him forever. These are the main reasons why I believe in the pre-tribulation theory. But again, whichever you believe, that's between you and God. And if we go through the time of tribulation, then God will give us the strength 
encourage and endure. But the question overall, when we boil this message down tonight to one thing, is are you ready? The whole idea, the whole using this, this cultural analogy of the wedding, it's all about the bride being ready. You know, the preparation, all that's going to be done because that's just a matter of him having the finances, having the ability to do all that. That's all, deal, you know, the bridegroom. But that bride has to be ready at a moment's notice. So when we, when we are walking through this life and walking life together as believers, our duty is to first introspectively make sure we're ready. And then, just like in the community series, then be able to call baloney when someone next to us is headed in the wrong direction and they aren't ready. So that all of us together are ready at a moment's notice when that trumpet sounds. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for uh, this time tonight in your word in the book of Revelation. And, and Lord, I, I am thankful for your Holy Spirit's help and the illumination of it. Lord, I pray that we would uh, continue in our knowledge, Lord, in our own time and, and digging into your word. But tonight, Lord, we have heard that the most important thing tonight is that we are ready. And so, Lord, as, as we begin to pray, I just pray that there's anybody here tonight that has searched their heart through this time and says, you know, I don't think I'm ready and I, I want to be. I don't, I don't know that I have really made the commitment to, to the Father, to Jesus, and I want to be. I want him to be king of kings and lord of lords in my life. If you're here tonight and you want me to pray with you that you, uh, that you are ready, that, that you are uh, making Jesus lord of your life, that you want to make that commitment tonight, then I want to pray with you. You just raise your hand. I want to pray with you tonight. Amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you that Tonight, uh, with the indication of no raised hands, Lord, that we are all ready and that we are, uh, we are waiting for your return. And in that time, Lord, help us and give us boldness and give us a word. Equip us, Lord, and send us out that we might bring others with us. That we might spread your gospel through this, this city, through our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, love y'all, and uh, I'll see you. I don't think we have anything else coming up before Sunday, so... We'll see you then.